0: This is Caught in the Act with Tim Clarke.
1: Welcome back. This week in the United Kingdom's highest court, Julian Assange, publisher, hacker, campaigner and prisoner, was not present in court. The High Court in London is going to hear today what could be the final bid by the WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to avoid extradition to the United States. Mr Assange, who's an Australian citizen, is wanted in the US for leaking secret military files over a decade ago. He's been fighting extradition on espionage charges for five years now. Julian couldn't appear in court today because he was unwell. He was so unwell he couldn't even appear by video link. That hearing, over two days, was to argue whether Assange will be allowed to appeal his potential extradition to the United States to face charges of espionage. It is his last roll of the legal dice. And according to his wife and other supporters, it has the potential to signal the last days of Julian Assange's life. So ill is he from what he has experienced for more than a decade. That hearing obviously heard from Assange's lawyers who said there was no possible way he could get a fair trial if sent to the States. And it heard from those United States who said two very different presidents had pursued the same goal to extradite Assange to their shores, proving they claimed that their pursuit was not political but legal. Joining me today to discuss the case of the United States of America versus Julian Paul Assange is a man who knows exactly what it's like to be locked up in another country for allegedly damaging national security. Welcome Peter Grest to Court in the act. Thank you very much. Peter you've worked as a journalist and foreign correspondent for Reuters CNN the BBC and Al Jazeera in the Middle East Latin America and Africa. And for a time, you were locked up in Egypt for doing that work. Your current title, if I get this right, is Professor of Journalism at Macquarie University in Sydney. So I'm guessing not only is the Julian Assange case one of personal interest, but it it, it might even turn into a potential teaching tool along the way.
0: Yeah, it's a very useful teaching tool because his case raises all sorts of, of questions and issues um around ethics and practices that journalists have to grapple with all the time mm. um, you know, the question of is julian assange a journalist at all um how did he get his information was it appropriate to release it if it was should he have redacted it should he not have um how did he handle it how did he work with other publishers other journalists um you know all of these questions are central to what what we do and what we teach the students none of them are particularly easy questions i oh. think that's also underscores why julian's case has been so controversial
1: yeah i mean i've been in the same profession as as you for 25 years probably not uh, at the same level or certainly not in the in the same peril at times um and i've struggled with that as well for for as long as the assange case is um, has been out there is the uh, publisher versus journalist redactions versus not um you know you know whether what he did was in the public interest, or did it put too many lives in danger? I mean, they're all they're all questions that are certainly valid, and hopefully we'll go through today. But also, tend to become lost now. I think in the in the sort of quite visceral us versus them argument. Look, I think what you just said
0: underscores one of the key problems, and we need to remember that it is possible to hold two contradictory truths at once. Um, it, we shouldn't have to. Julian, or his case, into one box or the other. We mm. can accept that some of what he did was legitimate, but there are other issues and other areas that that he of his behaviour that were problematic. Mm. Um, I think we have to accept and, and and embrace the complexity and the nuance here.
1: So, as Peter just said, Julian Assange has been many things in his 52 years. He was actually a Hawkins when he was born, but later took his stepfather's name when he was just a year old. Recounting his own history, Assange has said he lived in dozens of different towns across Australia in his childhood, describing that as idealistic but isolated. Removed from the rest of the world was how he put it. Until the internet, Assange studied programming, mathematics and physics at two universities. But years before that, he had become an accomplished computer hacker, which brought him into the orbit of police, both state and federal. His own dating profile described him as a pig-headed activist intellectual. He cracked the password to the Overseas Telecommunications Commission when he was still in his teens. He founded the International Subversives magazine, offering tips on how to break into telephone systems illegally and make free calls. In 1991, his tiny group sneaked in the back door of Milnet, the US military's secret defence data network. He later boasted that he had been reading General's emails since he was 17. But he also read the wind about possible prosecution and disappeared into the wilds of Victoria for a while. When he emerged, he was charged with hacking, which Assange eventually admitted. He could have gone to prison. Instead, he was fined, but also defined by a situation which firmed in his mind that anti-establishment was his only True stance. Assange believed the internet would be his tool to change the world, and leaks to him from behind whatever curtain the way to change it. So, in 2006, along with a fellow group of hacktivists, Assange formed WikiLeaks, and within a month had leaked something a communication from a Somalian Islamic cleric calling for political assassinations. And the leaks kept coming. Drone strikes in Yemen, corruption across the Arab world, executions by Kenyan police, Tibetan unrest in China. Noble, worthy, important, but not global. Not until April 2010, when footage of an airstrike in Baghdad conducted by a team of two US Apache helicopters was released to the world. Wikileaks called that video collateral murder. Peter, that gunfire from those helicopters killed two Reuters journalists, both of whom were carrying cameras. You've reported from war zones. Firstly tell us what it takes for a journalist to be able to put themselves in a place where they might just become a casualty of war themselves.
0: Now, well obviously it takes a lot of a lot of courage and commitment um, particularly to the ideas around bearing witness to some of these really important historical events but I think we need to keep in mind that journalists for a long time uh, have seen themselves as 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 outsiders to the conflict as as mm-hmm. observers rather than participants mm-hmm. and so in that regard i think we 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 come to think of ourselves as as enjoying a degree of neutrality as not necessarily being specific targets from from either side i think that changed a lot with with 911 it created a war over ideas over isms and, and in that kind of conflict journalism becomes as a place where those ideas are transmitted becomes a, a part of the battlefield but this was not one of those those situations. Um, this was a situation where journalists were doing what journalists do, and that's talking to people, trying to understand what was taking place. There was a meeting that was that uh, they'd gone to visit to, to, to see what was going on. As you said, they weren't carrying weapons, they were carrying cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the kind of situation that I've been in many, many times in places like Kabul and Baghdad and elsewhere. Um, and so to see that video was, was really quite shocking. I still remember the moment I saw it on my laptop mm. in my office, and I read it very, very clearly.
1: Yes, and I rewatched it yesterday, and it is still as shocking as when I think the whole world saw it back in back when WikiLeaks basically re- released it to the world. Um, having gone through uh, Julian Assange's background, there. Uh, he obviously had a background in hacking, computer hacking, which, which obviously got him into legal trouble. Uh, but his stance then became, well, you know, this I can use this for good. I can use this to help the world. Uh, in this release, I, I think, well, I'll ask you what you think. He felt he was doing the right thing here by releasing this video because he obviously saw a wrong in it.
0: Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree. I mean, this is what this is what journalists do. You know, they, at its core, what we saw was evidence of a shocking war crime of of the slaughter of a group of innocent civilians um, by American helicopter gunships. Um, it was really gut wrenching to see, but also gratifying to see and see it in public and to rec- and to have this being aired and, and force a really important public debate about the, the way that the Americans were, were running the war in Afghanistan so in that regard I, I, I applauded it you know I mm. I wanted to see it out there and I was glad it was out there I was glad that we were having the arguments and I was glad that that um, those really difficult questions were being asked of, of, of the American military questions that they hadn't been forced to answer um, before that video was published
1: mm. pictures obviously tell thousands of words and and the, these pictures um... yeah they launched a thousand or it felt like they launched a, a thousand inquiries um because yeah. because of the, the not only the nature of the footage but the way it was presented and when i was watching it back yesterday it also struck me as interesting that at the end they, they were credits put on it and uh, julian assange put his own credit as creative director as well as editor which uh, gave me a flavor of how he felt uh, that the way this was was to be um, presented to the world was as important as, as as presenting it in in the first place.
0: Yeah, and you know I think this cuts to the core of what why Assange set up WikiLeaks. That this was about exposing abuses and, um, and wrongdoing by by those in power, um, and to a certain extent, the whole idea behind WikiLeaks, the presentation of it, um, was also part of the theatre of that. Um, you know, sort of presented with a flourish and, mm. and presented in a place that was designed to force those in power to, to confront some of these really difficult questions. And so I think, you know, what Assange was doing was, as I said, a part of the theatre, a part of it. I don't, I don't mean that in a cynical way. I just think that that was, that was how he saw himself and, and, and what he was doing. Mm.
1: So within a month of that footage being released and the blizzard of criticism and commentary which followed, something else became public. The name Bradley Manning, a United States soldier, an intelligence analyst in Iraq and a whistleblower and alleged traitor to the country for which they served. Amid a complex personal background of gender dysphoria, bullying, reinstatement, top-secret clearance, and a fake Lady Gaga CD, Manning was able to download, secrete, and then leak hundreds of thousands of highly sensitive documents and footage relating to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Through covert communications with Assange, who allegedly encouraged Manning to steal classified documents and help them crack a password, Those files were disclosed en masse to WikiLeaks. And then Manning disclosed to another online confidant what had transpired, and in February 2010, that material began appearing in public online. Manning had been keeping secrets for years about feelings that the boy his parents had named Bradley was actually a girl, later to be called Chelsea. That the enlistment into the hyper-masculine army environment was an attempt to resolve that gender dilemma. But this secret of these astonishing leaks, a secret which would result in prison, shame and national ignominy, Manning didn't seem too keen to keep. In May 2010, to another online acquaintance, Manning strongly hinted where the footage of those helicopters shooting those journalists and civilians had come from. That acquaintance told a friend, who told the army, who told the FBI, who came calling within a day or two. Manning was arrested in Iraq and eventually charged with aiding the enemy, a crime which carried the death penalty. And the US military then said they also wanted to find Julian Assange in a bid to secure his cooperation in not releasing the documents. Assange and WikiLeaks were not in the mood. Thousands of secret US military files have been posted online which claim to reveal the truth about the war in Afghanistan. The leaked documents span over six years and provide detail on hundreds of civilian deaths including women and children. In July 2010 The Afghan war diary leaked online. In October, the Iraq war logs followed. In November, the Cablegate files, a quarter of a million US diplomatic cables revealing embarrassing details of international relations dating back decades, were also online. And many, many more, many of which were completely unredacted. Peter, you wrote about these leaks in 2020 and in that piece you pointed out the polarised pictures of Assange. One a freedom fighter, the other a fugitive. And you also said that social media coverage had made the nuance between the two almost invisible. It, It seems to me in the years since those two opposing views of the man have only hardened, particularly in the social media arena.
0: Yeah, that's right. And that's why I think it's very difficult to have um, a sensible conversation about Julian Assange because everybody mm. wants to fall, push him into either of those two camps, either hero or villain. And as I said earlier, I, I think it's it, not just possible, but important to hold those two contradictory truths together mm. and recognize that the truth is probably somewhere in, in the middle. You know, I applauded Julian for publishing the collateral murder videos because I thought that it revealed something really important. That, Urgently needed to be in, in, in the public and a part of public debate. But I also had a lot of serious troubles with the way that he published a lot of other unredacted files, and, and in the process, I thought put a lot of people at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's, I think what WikiLeaks did was confront some of the realities of the way that the war was conducted. And as I said earlier, it forced, it forced us to have some very important. If difficult conversations. Um, I understand why Julian took the approach that he did. And as you've, You know, I think the history and his background that you've, you've just outlined also helps us understand why he took the view that he did, uh, why he felt that he needed to take a kind of radical hacktivist position. Um, I don't think, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I do recognise the importance of so much of what WikiLeaks published, even if I feel that some of it was was did cross a line that it was that was fundamentally irresponsible.
1: Mm. And um, doing some reading, preparing for today, Assange had actually, when WikiLeaks was launched, he he wrote this sort of, I won't call it a manifesto, but it was it was his his thinking behind the reason for WikiLeaks. And one of the things that I found interesting was his argument that if you expose the secrets of a certain organization, um, holus bolus. If you if you just get it all out there, then that organization naturally will become less secretive because they will be worried about their new secrets being made public as well. I ne- I never thought about that until I read it yesterday. But that's some of the depth that that obviously Assange has has, has brought to yeah. the, the, the the this arena where you know which sometimes can be a bit more simplistic than that. In that, you know, publish and be damned.
0: It's, yeah, I, and, but I also happen. I think that that's a little bit idealistic because people will respond one of two ways. Either you say, well, look, our secrets are out there, so we need to be less secretive. We need to be more transparent because because of the risks of this, and that ultimately, any secrets we hold can be held against us. But but the contrary view, and the one that I think we saw a lot of governments take <laughs> that's to try and try and lock things up even tighter. Yeah. And um, try and hide things more and more. And and to be honest with you, that's a problem that we have in Australia. That, that Australia has um, one of the most the, is one of the most secretive governments in the world. In fact, the New York Times are, um, described Australia as perhaps the world's most secretive democracy. And so I think I th- you know I again while I understand and and recognise Julian's idealism, I'm not entirely sure that the outcome he was aiming for um, is always the outcome that that he that he achieved.
1: Mm. And I think if any any journalist listening to this that has tried to go through the freedom of information uh, process <laughs> in Australia, particularly Western Australia, will uh, will possibly uh, think, well, uh, yeah, it's probably easier to um, to build more shutters than just to bring them all down or leave them all down and open the windows as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we've seen that with countless reviews. Um, in fact, with the, we're working with um, the National Security Legislation Monitor at the moment to look at some of the secre- secrecy provisions in Australian law, and it's, it's very, very clear that the range and complexity of the laws shows that there is a default towards secrecy rather than transparency. And I think if there's nothing else that comes out of Julian's uh, Julian's case, it's uh, other than a debate about the importance for transparency, the need to open things up rather than close things down. Then I think we'll have achieved something important.
1: <laughs> it was in the same year that same year, 2010, that Julian Assange's legal issues began. Not surprising, really, but not actually directly linked to WikiLeaks. Because of their particular laws, Assange had used Sweden to house some of the WikiLeaks servers, and so too he spent quite a bit of time there. In August 2010, while visiting Stockholm, Assange allegedly sexually assaulted two different women. He immediately denied both sets of charges saying the sex was consensual. In September, he left that country for the UK, prompting Swedish authorities to issue an arrest warrant. In November, a Swedish court ordered the detention of Assange on suspicion of rape, three cases of sexual molestation and unlawful coercion. And in November, Interpol placed Julian Assange on its most wanted list. In the December, Assange presented himself to the Metropolitan Police in London, who locked him up and then bailed him out, after which he claimed innocence again and claimed something else, that the bid to get him back to Sweden was because it would be easier to extradite him to the United States from there, even though no charges had been laid there. On to the UK's High Court, who rejected an appeal. On to the Supreme Court, who rejected another appeal back to the Supreme Court, who on June 14th, 2012, again rejected any appeal, leaving Assange with no more legal avenues to traverse. So, instead, he dressed up as a bicycle courier, walked down Hans Crescent in London's exclusive Knightsbridge and asked for asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy. All right, let's take you back to London now where Julian Assange is, as we go to where, holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in the British capital. He is seeking asylum in that country as he awaits extradition to Sweden. Which is where he stayed for the next seven years. In that time, Assange acquired a cat, and some high-profile guests: Eric Cantona, Lady Gaga, Vivian Westwood, even Pamela Anderson. And apart from his freedom of movement, a couple of other things fell away in those years as well. The charges in Sweden discontinued in 2015 and 2017 by prosecutors at a loss with what to do. But Assange still stayed inside until eventually Ecuador ran out of patience leading to his dramatic arrest on the steps of that building in 2019. It was then that the US unsealed their indictment against Assange, accusing him of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion and, latterly, espionage. Peter, Assange spent seven years locked up in that embassy of his own accord. You were sentenced to seven years in prison by the Egyptian authorities. Now, we know you didn't serve all that time, but give us an insight into what goes through your mind and your body under those circumstances where you are locked up for essentially doing your job.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a pretty tough experience, as, as you can imagine. Uh, you mentioned mind and body. I think... One of the things I, I came to understand was that prison is essentially a psychological problem. As long as you've got food, water, and basic shelter, um, you've got the basics that you need for survival. And In that kind of environment, the only thing that will really get you in the end is your own head. Prison's designed to mess with your head. Mm-hmm. And if you're imprisoned, uh, as you said, for doing your job, it can become very, very depressing indeed. Um, once, you, once you start to lose confidence once you start to lose that um, sense of direction and purpose um, your body soon follows you you lose your energy you lose your your motivation Um, your body starts to to wind down, and that's when things start to start to unravel pretty quickly so the the primary objective the thing you've got to do more than anything else is to keep your head together to keep that sense of, of purpose to keep a reason why you're going through the hell that you're enduring Mm. uh, at the forefront of your mind and recognize that the fight isn't about you, it's about what you stand for.
1: And in your case, the Australian government uh, intervened and and brought you home. In Assange's Mm. case, a government position has been much longer in coming, but now they want the same thing for him.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, Last week, uh, we saw the government pass a resolution um, 86 to 42 two-thirds majority which is a pretty resounding resolution calling for Assange to be allowed or to be released and, and to return to Australia uh, it has taken a long time um, but the issue is that this is the fight that Assange is is, um, is uh, battling at the moment is between the British governments and the British and American governments Australia is essentially a bystander in this mm. um, the Australians have some some influence but they've really got no legal standing in the case Then there's no direct representation from the australian government in court um they don't they can only make diplomatic representations and they will count for something but ultimately the australian government's ability to bring assange home is pretty limited having said that i think the resolution was a really important declaration um, of, of commitment by the by the government and uh, i think it, it it will it will have, Make a difference. Whether it makes enough of a difference um, is something that well, I still can't. We still can't say.
1: Mm. And we know this the special relationship that the United States and the UK have, and, and we have, or well, Australia has a, a, an equally special relationship with both those parties. So, do you think? The um, the time that it's taken for the government to specifically say no, he suffered enough. You should bring him home. That there has to have been some political or at least diplomatic um, interests involved in finally coming to that position or not coming to that position.
0: Yeah, I think. Look, I think um, it would have been much more helpful if it, if the Australian government had come to that position sooner. Um, it's taken a hell of a long time, as you as you mentioned a moment ago. Uh, and I think if, if, if the Australian government had been more forthcoming, then, then we might not have found ourselves in this situation. Julian might have been home before now. Mm. Uh, but I think the government has also recognised that the political mood has shifted in Australia. Um, there is, I think, a pretty substantial majority of Australians who believe that whatever you think of, of Assange's actions is endured enough and that it really is time for him to come home, that it's going to be very, very difficult for him to get a fair trial in the US under these circumstances. Mm. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's frustrating, it's regrettable that the Australian government's taken this long, but I'm pleased that it's done it
1: ultimately. So, locked up again, this time in an actual high-security prison in the UK, Assange began his next fight, the fight which reached its final round this week. Resisting extradition to the United States on the grounds that the charges against him were political, a payback for revealing the trove of US military secrets. In hearing after hearing, other secrets have been revealed along the way, including alleged discussions between the US intelligence and a private security firm planning to poison or kidnap Assange from the Ecuadorian embassy. That was actually said in court. And we've also learned the true state of Assange's health, which was revealed to be so bad that if he was ordered to go to the US, he might never make it. Which is the reason in January 2021, a judge stopped the extradition. But that did not stop the United States. They appealed, they won on the back of assurances that if extradited, Assange would be looked after as well as locked up. And if he was locked up, he could spend his prison time in Australia. And so, an extradition order was signed, and then appealed again. Defeated again, and appealed one last time, this week in the High Court. A final legal gambit of a man too ill to hear it play out in person. Inside court, the battle lines were clearly drawn. For Assange, his lawyer, Edward Fitzgerald, said there was a real risk that he'll suffer a flagrant denial of justice if sent to the US. And for the United States, Claire Dobbin told the court that the prosecution of Assange is based on the rule of law and evidence. Ms. Dobbin said what he had done, what Julian Assange had done, was not journalism. He indiscriminately and knowingly published to the world the names of individuals who acted as sources of information to the United States. Peter, I have to admit, I have struggled with this over the years. I actually don't believe what Assange did in releasing those cables and those those documents unredacted was journalism. I, I believe he just published them, um, and and also provided them to journalists or media outlets who then um, worked on them and redacted them and, and 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 turned them into something that was journalism. Um, you came to a similar conclusion in an opinion piece a few years ago. Do you, do you still hold that
0: view? Yes, I do. Um, I think that, as you said, that, that the editors that um, took the, a lot of the WikiLeaks files did ultimately redact redact them. They went through the files, they pulled out key documents, they highlighted them, they placed, they analysed them, they placed them in context. They took the names of people uh, out of people who weren't directly involved in those. In, in in the issues that they exposed and so i think that was that really counts as journalism julian uh, and his lawyers have argued that he published all of the documents unredacted because there was another place when where he he knew online that they were about to be released yeah. my own view is that it doesn't really matter who else is publishing you're responsible for what you publish yourself and, and you need to you need to take care of that information. If others choose to publish unredacted, issues, uh, unredacted names, that's their problem, not yours. You shouldn't. That shouldn't be an excuse to, mm. to dump those, to expose those names. But um, I, you know, I, I recognise it's also a contested issue from my perspective. Though it doesn't count as journalism. I think we need to understand or recognise journalism as a as a process, um, as, and that process involves um, using editorial tools. Um, to, to as I say to to analyze and and, and um, place information in context before actually publishing it.
1: And taking your professorial hat on, you were also the executive director of the Alliance for Journalists' Freedom and that that group has now is now strongly advocating for Assange to be brought home. And uh, I think I personally agree with you here as well or <laughs> agree with the AJF yeah. there because he has suffered I mean he has suffered enough, hasn't he?
0: yeah and, and, and there's another important point here that even if we disagree with if, we, if even if I disagree with uh, the way that he handled information, even if I think it's not journalism, the way that the US government is using the Espionage Act to come after Julian for publishing, the information that he did, has serious implications Mm. for journalists um, elsewhere. It sets a very, very dangerous precedent that can be used against legitimate news organisations and legitimate journalists. And in fact, the Obama administration deliberately chose not to prosecute Julian Assange precisely because they were concerned about the precedent it might set. So... For that reason, um, we're we're calling for Assange to come home and because, as I said, as a human being, I I also feel it has suffered enough that this issue has gone on far too long
1: and it's time to to bring it to a close. And his case, Assange's case, um, brings into focus, for me anyway... Uh, something that's um, become more and more sort of prevalent within sort of media circles in particular, but also wider, is the blurring of lines between journalism and activism and 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 you know where 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 that line is drawn can it ever be now in in the age that we live in strictly drawn as it once was I mean how how do you feel about this as a a, you know long-standing experienced journalist Uh, but also a teacher of the future of this uh, this fine profession
0: (laughs) I I I think it I think the lines have always been been blurred they've always been activist journalists or campaigning journalists Mm. and I, I I think there's, a, there's always going to be a role for that. But this is also why the AJF has, has really thought hard about how you define the thing you're going to try to protect if we're passing media freedom laws. And we've come to the view that we should, shouldn't be thinking of journalists as a particular class of individual, but journalism as a process of, of, of gathering, organizing, and presenting information in the public interest. And I think that helps us really narrow down what counts as journalism as opposed to commentary. Um, journalism requires a degree of detachment from your subject, it requires fact-checking, it requires balance, it requires context, it requires um, doing those things, fact, it requires rights of reply, it requires doing all of those things with a view to, to publishing in, in the public interest. And I think as long as we hold to those, those standards, and they're not particularly controversial standards, they're the kinds of things that we teach, we've been teaching our students for, for years, the kinds of things that you see Popping up in, in you know, journal, standard journalism codes of conduct um, all over the world. But if we can focus on the process of journalism that's that's accountable to a set to a code of conduct or a set of ethics and standards, then I think we're closer to to holding that line between um, journalism in the public interest and, and and commentary and campaigning, which which is, still has value in public interest, but doesn't quite. Qualify as journalism
1: yeah and i had a discussion with a colleague just the other day about how it is quite easy particularly when you get embedded or so um involved in a story to um you know become to to cross that line even without actually knowing it into support or editorialism or or you know just (laughs) nudging too quite you know just that little bit too hard to get that extra line or that extra quote it's easy to do but it's it's we, as you say i think the whole industry has to be so vigilant about you know
0: well, well yes but we also have to recognize that journalism is a human construct and mm. humans have to make subjective choices always but the um the, the the choices about the questions you ask and the questions you don't ask are subjective the people you speak to and the ones who you don't speak to the the order of of the information that that, uh, you present, what you put in and what you leave out, all of those things are subjective choices that change the way in which you present a story or the way that it's read. So you have to accept that there's always going to be a degree of subjectivity. Um, But you can be upfront about it. You can, you're right, you do lose your independence if you're embedded with a military unit and you come to identify with the people that you're relying on. You're going to see the world through their eyes. That's okay if you're presenting a story that's clearly in that, in that, you know, from that perspective, it's not okay if you're trying to pretend that that perspective is somehow a neutral, balanced view of, of the war. It's mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a view of a view of conflict from from behind the sights of the soldiers that you're with. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, that's that's okay. That's legitimate. But we we need to be transparent about where we stand. We need to be transparent about how we gather our information. We need to be open and transparent about uh, the perspectives that we're trying to articulate.
1: And just finally peter I'm on a sort of allied issue the The Wall Street Journal has had a journalist also locked up in a foreign country for for more than five years now uh, right. a journalist called Evan gershewitz uh, obviously locked up for 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 doing their job, but in a in an entirely different um regime um what do you think? Well, I mean, can the Western Western journalists do anything more than just keep saying his name and on the hope that something will happen there?
0: Absolutely, and I don't think it's I don't think it's a vain hope. Um, mm. I think that even even the most authoritarian governments, even the Russian government, uh, is sensitive to criticism from 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 abroad. It won't ever acknowledge it. Um, it will do its best to appear, you know, independent of that, to mm. to, to not give a damn about it, but constant voices, constant pressure does make a difference. In fact, I'm, I'm convinced that I would still be in Egypt if it weren't for the, for the literally millions of, of voices uh, that were out there in support of me and my two colleagues mm. uh, when, we were, when we were detained in 2013, 2014. Um, I think that it, it, you can't ever point to any one particular individual that will say something that will ultimately unlock the, the unlock Evan Gershkovich's uh, cell. But the constant pressure does does make the um, the authorities in Russia think. It also opens, it creates opportunities to, to perhaps broker some kind of deal. But without the pressure, we can't ever say what will change the dynamic for, for Gershkiewicz, but we can say that without the pressure, it's unlikely that, that, that we'll see a breakthrough. Mm.
1: So the judges in the UK's High Court reserved their decision on the case of Julian Assange this week. So now he waits... As do we. Peter, Grasther, thanks so much for joining us on Court in the Act this week. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: And the pleasure's been mine. Thank you very
1: much for having me. And thanks again to you all for listening. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with us by writing to Court in the Act at WA Don't forget to like and subscribe and tell everyone how good we really are. And remember, if you want to know what's going on in court, don't get caught short, get caught in the act instead. See you next week.